This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time by Alan Gannett. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Epilogue It was 1990. J.K. Rowling was stuck on the train from Manchester to London. The train was delayed, and it was looking less and less likely she'd reach London on time. Her mind started to wander. Then, as she later told the New York Times, quote, it was the most incredible feeling. Out of nowhere, it just fell from above, end quote. Suddenly, the ideas for the characters inhabiting a magical world began filling her brain, starting with Harry Potter. Quote, I could see Harry very clearly, this scrawny little boy, and it was the most physical rush of excitement. I've never felt that excited about anything to do with writing. I've never had an idea that gave me such a physical response. End quote. The mythology around the creation of Harry Potter would have us believe that Rowling then scribbled her ideas on a napkin. In truth, she had no paper with her. Quote, I'm rummaging through this bag trying to find a pen or pencil or anything. I didn't even have any eyeliner on me. So I just had to sit and think. And for four hours, because the train was delayed, I had all these ideas bubbling up through my head. Rowling continued, By the end of that train journey, I knew it was going to be a seven-book series. I know that's extraordinarily arrogant for somebody who has never published, but that's how it came to me. End quote. That night, in her apartment in the Clapham Junction neighborhood of London, she began writing things down in her notebook. She never could have known that by 2016, the Harry Potter series would have sold an estimated $7.7 billion of books, plus revenue from film versions, theme parks, exhibitions, and a new play that debuted in London in 2016, and an ever-growing list of Harry Potter-themed products. Like Paul McCartney's Yesterday, Harry Potter's spontaneous origin has become a legend for Rowling's fans and throughout literature. Rowling reinforces the notion of sudden insight. When pressed to explain where her ideas came from, she demurs, quote, I have no idea where ideas come from, and I hope I never find out. It would spoil the excitement for me if it turned out I just have a funny little wrinkle on the surface of my brain, which makes me think about invisible train platforms, end quote. While this image of Rowling makes her a poster child for the inspiration theory of creativity, in truth, Rowling is a near-perfect example of someone following the four laws of the creative curve. Consumption and Constraints As a child, Rowling was a rabid reader, consuming one novel after the next. Like many of the creative artists I profiled, she came of age in a rough home environment. Her mother's multiple sclerosis strained the family's emotional and financial resources, and Rowling's relationship with her father was often tense. To escape, she retreated to her bedroom and the comfort of her books. Reading transported her to the worlds far beyond the small village where she lived in the south of England. Asked about advice for aspiring writers, Rowling later told an interviewer, quote, The most important thing is to read as much as you can, like I did. It will give you an understanding of what makes good writing, and it will enlarge your vocabulary. End quote. Rowling continued reading voraciously into her adulthood. At Exeter University, she had to pay a $50 library fine for having so many overdue books. Her official biology credits, biography credits her college reading of Latin classics with helping her create the spells in Harry Potter. 
Rowling, like all college geniuses, engaged in intense consumption that gave her the raw ingredients for her own future creativity. These ingredients all came together in the Harry Potter series. While each book has its own plot structure, the overall series follows a traditional rags-to-riches arc. Potter, the young orphan, doesn't even have a bed to sleep on. But by the end of the series, he has slain his nemesis, fallen in love, and is set to live happily ever after. Rowling took a traditional and familiar story structure, the orphan rising to greatness, and added her own twist, young wizards who are grappling with the complexities of growing up. Iterations Creating a World J.K. Rowling got off the train when it reached London, feeling inspired. If she had believed in the inspiration theory of creativity, she might have gone home and sat at her desk, waiting for yet more revelations. Instead, inspired by the vision she'd already mapped out in her head, she began planning her books methodically. Rowling spent the next five years engaged in creative iterations, developing the plots of all seven books and writing the first book. Her story is not one of sudden inspiration leading to overnight success. In fact, Rowling is one of the most organized and driven fiction writers I found in my research. Once, during a television interview, she showed a journalist her papers. Among the troves of boxes were 15 variations of the first chapter of book one alone, as well as a chart that included every single character in Harry Potter's class at Hogwarts that Rowling used to develop her plots. It didn't stop there. Rowling published on her website a plot table she had created to plan her fifth book. On the left-hand side, she listed every chapter, followed by a column for each subplot, and a map that helped her organize how various plot lines would unfold throughout the book. Her original agent, Christopher Little, described to me how obvious her planning was when the, when the two of them first met. Quote, what was quite extraordinary was that she had a very clear picture in her head of seven books. If you asked a question about a particular scene where you go down a corridor and you turn into the third door on the left, she knew what was in the first door and the second door, end quote. Rowling was more than just a visionary. She was also a voracious planner who exerted immense effort. Community. As I wrote earlier, creative communities are critical for guiding creators down the rough road toward achievement, and Rowling was no exception. At one point, Rowling, a single mother, decided to relocate to Edinburgh to be closer to her sister, Diane. Rowling's brother-in-law had just opened a small cafe called Nicholson's. Soon, Rowling could be found in one corner of the coffee shop writing about witches and wizards, her baby Jessica having fallen, having fallen asleep earlier in the carriage. This gave Rowling the quiet, focused time she needed to write. That said, things weren't going all that well for Rowling. She had no money and was forced to go on public assistance, receiving 68 pounds a week as she looked for a job. Before long, she found herself in a clinical depression and sought out a therapist. Without the support of her family and the help of a therapist, would Harry Potter even have come to fruition? In addition, Rowling relied on collaborators and promoters to turn her debut novel into what would later become the Harry Potter phenomenon. After writing Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Rowling knew, knew that she needed a literary agent and went to Edinburgh's Central Library to hunt down possible names. As she leafed through the pages of an agent directory, one name caught her attention. Christopher Little. Rowling had always loved folklore and children's tales, and Little's name sounded like a character in a children's book. 
That afternoon, long before the days of email, she sent off a precious copy of her first three chapters via royal mail. For his part, Christopher Little tended to avoid children's books, but was immediately enamored by the world that Rowling had created. He wrote her back promptly, asking to read the rest of the manuscript. Once he read it, Little offered to represent her. Rowling agreed, and the agent got to work pitching publishers. Before long, the responses started trickling in. Too small of an audience. Stories about orphans don't do well. Too scary for a children's book. It should be 30,000 words, max. By the end, 12 British publishers turned it down. It was then that Barry Cunningham, an editor at the then-small children's division of Bloomsbury, read the manuscript, loved it, and called Chris Little. He wanted to make an offer on the book. But Little had a plan. As he put it, quote, I restricted their offer to very limited territories and one book, end quote. His instincts told him that Harry Potter had legs, and he didn't want to give away too much too soon for a small sum. On Friday afternoon, Little called Rowling to give her the news. She was speechless to hear that she had become a published author. Worried by her silence, Little asked her, quote, Are you all right? Are you still there? End quote. Rowling replied, Well, it's just that my lifelong dream has come true. And as Little remembers it, she was completely over the moon. Bloomsbury paid only £2,500 as an advance, which, I might add, gave the publisher one of the greatest returns in literary history. Browling had accomplished her dream. She had sold her first novel, but to do that she relied on a promoter who helped her land a contract with a reputable publisher. In her new editor, Barry Cunningham, she found another collaborator who understood the creative curve and the importance of marketing an industry foreign to Rowling. Cunningham began his publishing career as a marketing associate at Puffin Books, the children's imprint of Penguin Books. He assumed the job that would ordinarily entail organizing literary campaigns. Instead, he found himself dressed in a giant costume as the imprint adorable penguin mascot. In costume, Cunningham would visit classrooms with authors like Roald Dahl. Spending time with children helped him to realize what kids loved and looked for in books. Quote, what children love to read is a blend of familiarity and adventure. The unfamiliar and the comforting all at the same time. End quote. Cunningham's marketing experience made him stand out from other publishers who'd spent their whole lives on the editorial side of things. When he first read the manuscript of Harry Potter, he recognized that the combination of familiarity and novelty made it a perfect book for children. The success of Rowling's book may have seemed due to luck or happenstance, but it was actually the result of a thoughtful process. Christopher Little planned to wait until the book was published in England to sell it to an American publisher, as he expected to be able to create early hype in the British market. He didn't know the half of it. In the wake of Harry Potter's UK publication, the book found passionate early fans. 3,000 miles away, American publishers started to hear good things about the book. The result was an auction involving six publishers that was finally won by Scholastic for $105,000. The sale gave rise to a torrent of media attention. A single mother and part-time teacher had done the impossible. The Herald's headline announced, Book written in Edinburgh Cafe sells for $100,000. Rowling, it seemed, was her own rags-to-riches story. The resulting attention gave her book the kind of mainstream exposure that most writers pray for and seldom get. 
and before long, Harry Potter had turned into an empire. Rowling didn't wait for ideas to strike her. Instead, she toiled for years to create something great. She planned, outlined, and developed reference materials, going through endless iterations and drafts to get her story and her characters just right. Along the way, she faced both personal and economic challenges, but she was sustained by a creative community, including her agent and the team at Bloomsbury, and continued to write. In other words, Rowling followed the laws of creativity. One of the things I love most about Rowling's story is the colossal gap between the public perception of her creative process and the reality. She didn't just get struck by lightning. She didn't win the creative lottery. She spent many years of her life reading, planning, and writing. And the result, of course, was and is Harry Potter. A parting note. When we are children, we are told all the time how creative we are. Teachers and parents encourage us to draw multicolored creatures, create characters and friends out of toys or thin air, and transform blocks into magical towers that keep watch over our darkening bedrooms. But as we get older, the creative child inside of us fades. In school, we learn how to take standardized tests and do trigonometry. We watch movies and read magazines that tell us stories of unattainable genius. Journalists pack and sell creativity as the exclusive province of a rarefied few. By the time we start considering a career, we've lost the images of ourselves as creative people. Instead, creative success becomes something abstract and distant, something to read about and perhaps desire, but seldom to take action upon. Two years ago, when I first began researching creativity, I came face to face with any number of conflicting stories, theories, and myths. What's more, even creative people whose careers would seem to encapsulate success found it hard to identify the roots of their creativity. The mythology around stories like Rowling's makes creative success sound like a combination of good, even excessive, fortune and divine will. Easy for some, impossible for most. For many, these made-up stories of genius can be discouraging. By celebrating the greatness of very few, our culture signals that the rest of us either have it or don't have it. But as I spoke to more and more creative artists in all industries, from all walks of life, patterns began to emerge of which few, if any, of the people I interviewed were aware. They were all doing the same things to spark and execute their creative ideas. The final pieces fell into place when I met with researchers and academics and became aware of the creative curve, the bell-shaped relationship between exposure and likability. This, I realized, is a fundamental mechanism underlying how trends come in and out of favor. The world's best-known creative people follow a consistent pattern of behavior that allows them to create movies, novels, music, food, paintings, gadgets, and companies that hit the sweet spot on the creative curve. Via relentless consumption, they planted the seeds for moments of sudden inspiration that could change the world with familiar, but not excessively familiar, ideas. Through imitation, they learned the necessary constraints and formulas of their industry and learned how to apply the precisely necessary amount of novelty. Through building communities, they refined their skills, gained motivation, and found collaborators to help them execute their projects. Finally, by being aware of timing and engaging in iterations that took advantage of data and process to improve their work and achieve the ideal point of familiarity and novelty. Creative success, in fact, is learnable, whether you're a starving artist or the head of an advertising firm. And this is where I worry.
The fact that there's a pattern out there does not mean that it's easy. In fact, mastering the creative curve can take years. In Your Hands is not a book telling you that with minimal effort you can be the next Mozart or Picasso or Elon Musk or J.K. Rowling. No, this is a book that tells you that if you choose to dedicate your life to creativity, there is a path and a set of key considerations you need to bear in mind and need to do to make success happen. The laws of the creative curve provide a blueprint for how every one of us can unlock our creative potential. The patterns of creative success can be learned and with time mastered. Of course, that gives you one less excuse for waiting until tomorrow to begin writing that novel, setting down the lyrics to that song, or building that startup. Achieving your creative potential is not for the faint of heart. It requires countless hours, days, and even years of work. But it is no longer a mystery. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.